Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is TV Tape, Variety's television podcast. I'm Daniel Holloway. Today, we talk with Tom Jennings, director of Apollo, Missions to the Moon. The National Geographic documentary premieres July 7th, 50 years after the Apollo 11 astronauts first landed on the lunar surface. Later, critics Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke discuss the Emmy race for best comedy and best drama. Stay tuned. Tom Jennings, thank you for doing this. Daniel, thank you very much for having me. Uh, so with this film, you cover the Apollo program in its entirety, but it seems like you spend a pretty significant amount of time on three sort of key incidents. Mm -hmm. The fire that destroyed Apollo 1 and killed three astronauts, the successful Apollo 11 mission to the moon, and the near disaster of Apollo 13. And I wonder if what it was that made those three moments stand out and become such a, such a focal point for this movie. Mm. Uh, you are correct. We do spend a lot of time on those three moments. Uh, we actually spend a lot of time on probably about seven or eight key moments. And we did that specifically to those three because in gathering footage for something like this, as you can imagine, there's thousands of hours, not just from NASA, but from news organizations, from radio reports at the time. We throw a very wide net. And so in we made a conscious decision early on that uh, in doing something for the 50th anniversary of the moon landing, we knew there'd be a lot of other films about Apollo 11. And in working with the network, National Geographic, we decided to do the entire Apollo story. But in order to get our hands around that story, we had to pick kind of a handful of pillars that we thought were key. Apollo 1 kind of sets the stage as far as telling the story of the characters involved, the characters being the astronauts, the astronauts' families, the people in mission control. We literally created character lines for archival footage, like a feature film director would. And that was to keep ourselves sane. So Apollo 1, you meet the astronauts who are going to go on that mission. Uh, Roger Chaffee, Gus Grisham, and Ed White. And you hear their sincerity and their willingness to do whatever it takes to get the Apollo missions off the ground. And then you have to experience the tragedy of losing them, you know, because they early on in the film, they become characters to us exper experiencing the story and then they're gone. Apollo 11 is the obvious one because we're at the 50th anniversary. A lot of people are doing it. It's the ultimate achievement. 13 becomes significant in that because of what happened in space with the explosion. But after Apollo 11, public interest and political interest in the space pro program didn't just wane, it dropped off a cliff. And nobody wanted to do it anymore. NASA wanted to keep going. And 
13 showed us that people were still risking their lives to try and get to the moon. It was a tremendous heroic effort. The nation and the world again stopped, similar to what happened with 11, but not as much so. And so those became major moments for us to explore. They're familiar, but also we use footage that is either new because it's been in archives or people haven't seen it before. Like we use local news broadcasts from Cocoa Beach, Florida. I can guarantee no one's seen the Cocoa Beach coverage since <laughs> 1969. And we try and tell the story with fresh eyes. So even though 1, 11, and 13 may be well known to people who know the story, they're seeing it in ways that they've never seen it before. Uh, I know a little bit about this story, but not uh, I'm not a completist by any stretch of the imagination. And, and Grisham was someone who I wasn't really familiar with, mm -hmm. and he really sort of, for whatever reason, kind of stands out as a character early on. Mm -hmm. um, you do. How did you sort of set him and the other Apollo 1 astronauts up from a character standpoint so that we would kind of understand the impact of the loss when they then die on the launch pad? Well, there were a couple things we did with Apollo 1. Uh, you meet Grissom and you meet Grissom's family and his wife, Betty, who is sitting in her living room with a film crew from NBC watching her husband be named one of the finalists to, uh, uh, for the astronauts Apollo program. And then uh, turning to the film crew after they say, well, how do you feel about this? And uh, Mrs. Grissom saying, well, how would you feel? Asking the, the, the film guys, how would you feel if it was your wife going to outer space? You could tell she wasn't all that happy about it. She was worried and nervous. And then the next time you meet her in our film, she's at Arlington getting a folded up flag from the president of the United States. Uh, with Grissom and Chaffee especially. Chaffee says, you know, he was the uh, kind of novice of the three. He was the youngest. Uh, Grissom was a guy who had been around quite some time. But I, I liked what Chaffee had to say, and we use him a couple of times in the film, uh, about why do it. And he says, that, you know, he gives because it's there first, which is why I climbed the mountain. But then he, he adds, we would be remiss in our uh, duties as human beings not to explore. And I thought that was such a brilliant thing to say for someone who was about to put their life on the line and why they were willing to do this. And then with Grissom, he's kind of the old vet. He's, he's, he had participated in Mercury and Gemini, uh, the space programs prior to the Apollo program. And, uh, it was important to see that here's a guy who's like, hey, I'm just going to keep going no matter what. You know, I, I have slight memories of the space program when I was a young boy. And, you know, those astronauts were like almost gods. And, uh, and going through all the footage and listening to them and watching them, they're less godlike now, but I have more respect for them now than when I was seven years old and I thought they could walk on water. And the reason is they were just determined individuals. They had this quiet confidence about them. You know, there wasn't so much of a swagger that I found in the footage as much as, you know, we're going to do this. We have a job to do. We're going to get it done. We're not quite sure how we're going to do it yet, but we'll make it work. And where I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, um, Jim Lovell, one of the astronauts from 13 and also Apollo 8, uh, he, was, he grew up not too far from where I did. 
And so you can imagine, uh, you know, Cleveland, Ohio in the late 60s was uh, a buzz with NASA news <laughs> because of Jim Lovell's uh, involvement in the program. As you mentioned, with this being the 50th anniversary mm-hmm. of Apollo 11, there have been a ton of projects mm-hmm. and there have been a ton prior to this. So when looking at how to tell the story of Apollo 11 within the context of your film, what did you want to do? or try to do to attempt to make it stand out or a little bit different from what we've seen before? Well, there have been a lot of Apollo 11 docs. There's current docs, obviously, because of uh, the anniversary. We wanted to make 11 not exist in a vacuum. And I think that's you know easy to do because it's like, here we are, it's launch time, July 1969. But there was so much that went into the project up to that point. So if you watch it, uh, 11 becomes this moment of great celebration and joy and accomplishment. But the way we presented it, it was just a natural transition from everything that had come before. Uh, That's why we, you know, when we first talked with the network about doing an Apollo anniversary show, the first thing out of my mouth was, you know, there's going to be like 20 of these. Uh, And they said, yes, it's up to you to figure out how to make it different. (laughs) And uh, and we work with them and um, we have a style that's very unique in that we have no narrator and no interviews. Some other people have used that in other films, but I think we do it the best. We've done a lot of them. Um, And uh, the other thing was that we didn't want to lock ourselves into uh, just 11. We thought... this, this, we have to show the context in, in which it existed. And you're talking about showing context in a film with no narration and no interviews. So that's doubly hard. And so by going back to Sputnik and then f- tracing it all the way through to the space shuttle, the, the, the beginnings of the space shuttle, we felt we were showing 11 as it stood as part of the entire program. You know, how we show the moon landing itself, uh, the 1202 alarm, which, you know, I had forgotten about that they almost didn't land. They almost ran out of fuel. I'd forgotten those things. And those are easy to show again because the footage exists and the audio exists. But I think the way we went about making a 11 feel set apart is making it part of this tapestry of the entire story of Apollo so that it didn't feel just like a sore thumb. It felt like part of a narrative might have been, you know, this tremendous moment, but it was part of a much bigger narrative. So I think that's how we went about it. Because there's only so much footage you can show from those particular moments. And we tried to make them as good as we could and very emotional. And uh, one small thing I'll tell you, we, we were very fortunate. We worked with Hans Zimmer, the composer on this, and um, his team here in Santa Monica, California, and uh, one thing that they did that uh, when we listened to the score in their studio the first time, uh, I noted, and it comes up during the moon landing, in the background of the score that uh, James Everingham is the guy who composed the, uh, the music with Hans's oversight and Russell Emanuel, um, there was a beep like Sputnik going on. And I said to them, I said, oh, that's really clever. You guys created like a beep, like Sputnik. And they all turned around and said, that is Sputnik. They used the 1957. They sampled Sputnik? They sampled (laughs) Sputnik 
And they were explaining to me, uh, it was like an underlying tone of, you know, the space race kind of fell away. It became about the achievement, but the Russians were always over our shoulder. So Sputnik was always there in the background. And I just, when he, when they said that, I said, I, I, I'll stop giving notes. Because <laughs> I think that's one, that they sampled Sputnik into our score. And it works brilliantly. It has yeah. a great musical tone to it. Uh, but that's another way that we, you know, you, you can't say, here's all this new stuff that's going to tell the story in a completely different way. We use the local news footage that's new. We use radio that people haven't heard. NASA has been digitizing all of this background tracks from Mission Control. So Mission Control is no longer, you know, a silent movie. You get to hear all of these people in real time. So you're in the room. So there's these little filmmaking tricks almost that we do. And then you have Sputnik in the background as Neil Armstrong's trying to put the thing down on the surface of the moon. You're hanging this beep, beep, beep. And you're like right over your shoulder. They <laughs> they might be coming. So uh, you try and make it as, uh, you know, educational, but enter entertaining as possible. You know, and I think we did a good job with that. As you said, this... Um this style of using archival footage without uh, interview, without narration, um, that is something that you specialize in. What What is it about working that way that appeals to you, and why does that approach work for this particular film? We've done that. We started this style in, for National Geographic, actually, in 2009. We started it uh, with a film about the assassination of John Kennedy in Dallas, and I had been given an assignment in the late 90s when I started writing documentaries in, in Los Angeles and um, to do something on the Kennedy assassination. And there's another story, well, you know, been there, done that, how many of these have been done. And I went to Dallas and I met with a guy named Gary Mack. He was the curator of a place called the Sixth Floor Museum. And uh, he, he passed on a couple of years ago. But Gary uh, had gathered all the local Dallas footage. Uh, so forget about Walter Cronkite and delivering the news to the nation. Hundreds of hours of radio and television that was shot by the local affiliates. And I started watching this stuff with Gary, and, and it's mesmerizing. And I said to him, you could just make this play. You could just play this. And, you know, and he goes, you're right, you could. And it took 14 years to convince a network to do a show that way without narration. <laughs> and um, it was National Geographic. They said, okay, and we did a two-hour special. It worked really well for them. We went on and did the same thing about the assassination of Martin Luther King, all of the local stuff. And so I found that there were entire worlds out there that exist in archives that people have not tapped yet. And if you assemble it in a way that feels like the footage was shot for you for a film and you have enough audio to help tell the story because audio is our narration you can make a time machine in, in a sense and we've done we've done almost 20 films in this form since 2009 we did one on the space shuttle challenger disaster in 2016 for the anniversary um, and then we did one on Princess Diana, and that worked for also for National Geographic in 2017, and then this one. But the original idea is a quick aside. When I was a kid, 
there was a show on CBS called You Are There. And You Are There, there was a version in the 50s and one in the 70s. And I remember the one in the 70s. You Are There was a Saturday morning kids show. And it was Walter Cronkite sitting at the news desk. And he said, here we are today, for an example, April 14th, 1912. And we're going to go out to the deck of the... uh, HMS Titanic, where our correspondent Dan Rather is talking, and it was it was the conceit of it was, what if the power of a major news division like CBS existed to cover news events prior to the age of electronic media, and they would go to sets with actors, so you would have the real correspondents interviewing actors of the major players of like the sinking of the Titanic the fight at the Alamo in San Antonio. And I remember being, it's the only Saturday morning show I remember, that and Bugs Bunny maybe. (laughs) And I remember being fascinated by this. And when I stumbled across all this footage in Dallas, I realized that we could do You Are There, but the real version. We don't need actors because it's all here. And so we started to refine this. And the reason it works for Apollo is it's Apollo's far enough away that some people will still remember it. A lot of people don't know about it. But there's enough footage and enough coverage and enough variety of footage that feels fresh. Then when, you know, if we've done our job right, people will watch it. And what I hope is, that, you know, when, it's, when it rolls out at the end, if they can say, wow, so that's what it was like. And if we're able to do that, then we've done our job. And I think Apollo is a great, a great one because there are so many options, you know. Yes, there's 20 films out. They're all great in their own way. I think ours gives the best primer of the whole thing using the format of trying to take you back in time. You mentioned um, getting news footage from uh, local affiliates in mm-hmm. Cocoa Beach. What were what were some of the other things that you found that sort of stuck out to you as favorites? Uh, well, uh, in Southern California in Garden Grove, I never seen footage of the first drive-in church yes. which was amazing <laughs> it was amazing that was <clears throat> crazy looking who knew yeah uh one of the thing i i, I loved uh, apollo 7 is a good example of the, how the research led us to do um uh, led us to include a story beat that we weren't planning on apollo 7 was the first manned mission after the fire of apollo 1 and uh we were going through some of the NASA footage, and there was an interview with the NASA spokesman where he was talking about, oh, we're going to have a camera on board Apollo 7 so that we can do live television broadcasts from space. And we thought, that's kind of cool. <clears throat> Let's see what's there. So we found the footage, and it turned out that they were joking around, and you know, they, were, they said, oh, we have our ups and downs in space, and they're kind of bouncing inside the capsule. And so we did a, a wider search, and we found that they were on the Bob Hope show. And this was not a story pillar we were going after when we went in. It came just from that one interview. And then on the Bob Hope show, it's the three of them being lectured by Bob Hope about how bad their ratings were from space, which they were incredible, actually. <laughs> <laughs> And Bob Hope knew it. And Bob Hope says, you, you need to follow my lead. You know, how do you think I've been so successful all these years? And Wally Shira says, luck. And everybody laughs. And you think that's the gag. And then Bob Hope says, 
watch it. Nobody likes a smart astronaut. And the audience is uproarious when they hear this. And the reason is that was an off-color joke for them at that time. He was saying smart ass on television, but he was saying smart astronaut. And not only did it complete the story of this live broadcast, but it helps define the time. You know, Bob Hope said smart astronaut on television, and he got away with it, you know, compared to what we put on television today. People thought it was outrageous. They thought it was an an outrageous thing for him to say. And to us, it it barely registers on uh, the meter anymore. So uh, that was great. And um, another thing that we found that got cut, uh, Apollo 12, when they landed on the moon, they gave them a nice new camera to get better pictures. And they immediately pointed it directly at the sun and fried the inside of the... (laughs) But they had the audio coming back. Uh And so CBS and ABC, this is, I think, where the conspiracy theorists come from. They um, they they got actors and they built a lunar module set in New York and they had like actors kind of jumping around mimicking what the audio was being said. Um, but NBC has not been able to find their footage. But what we found out that they had done is they hired a guy named Bill Baird and Bill Baird was the puppeteer famous for the sound of music like the lonely goat herd. Yeah. You know, yeah. that scene. And uh, they hired him to create puppets to reenact what the astronauts of Apollo 12 were doing on the moon. And no one has this footage. Oh, God, that's a shame. We went to the Bill Baird Museum in Mason City, Iowa. This is the links that we go to. Who knew there was one? (laughs) But there is. And they had like 10 seconds of this footage. And we found it. And we were... It, it was like our own moon rock that day, you know, and, and we were so thrilled when it came in. But the closer we got to locking the master, we, we realized the whole story beat was more about the media than about Apollo. And it just it was taking so much to explain it that we wound up cutting it. But uh, I have a still frame of the puppet astronaut. That's, <laughs> a, that's a shame. Although I, I do, I, I, I can imagine that puppet astronauts would take a lot of context building to yeah, pull yeah. off. So. <laughs> and they were talking about it. You know, we have to rely on what's being said at the time. And no one's really saying, here's some puppets. Here's some astronaut puppets. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll tell you one other quick thing that's missing that I hope I'm the guy that finds the BBC, the day of the moon landing, we couldn't, this footage has been missing for years. The BBC July 20th moon landing footage has been gone. Uh, we, I don't know if it's been taped over, stolen, whatever. They brought in the band Pink Floyd into their studio um, to play while uh, the lunar module was coming You're down. Kidding. The, I am completely serious and uh, david gilmore from the band wrote about this uh, several years ago but they they did this kind of free form jam this is long before dark side of the moon uh, uh they did this song called moonhead yeah which is actually you can find on youtube because somebody recorded it when they played it in concert about six months after the moon landing but um the bbc tapes from that day are missing and pink floyd played in the background that's, you know, the BBC was trying to do something a little wacky. So they brought in this London psychedelic band to play 
while everyone's watching, you know, the first step and everything else that was going on. Um, so that's an example of we've heard things that are out there. No one can find it. We did. We we found the puppets. So I thought maybe we'd be the ones to find the BBC Pink Floyd footage, but we never found it. Uh, but we're still looking. Yeah. Well, hopefully you or someone does. Is that oh, yeah. intense? Um, was there anything that you learned about Apollo in the making of this film that you didn't know yes. going into it? <clears throat> I learned many things, but I think the thing that blew me away um, was the size of the program. I did not realize, or you know, I, I knew it was big, but when you look at the footage, for example, you think it's just mission control. You know, it's a couple hundred guys, maybe a thousand people. I learned over the course of Apollo, uh, 400,000 people worked on the Apollo missions. NASA subcontracted 20,000 companies to work with them to create the moon landing. Um, and it, uh, I had no clue that it was that big. The other thing that I learned upon finishing this film is one of the people that's in our film is a woman named Poppy Northcutt. She was the woman who was interviewed where the uh, reporter said, what's it like to be a woman working with all these men? And she gave a perfect answer for that time and for our times today, which was, well, actually, I work with a lot of computers and machines. Uh, and... Um, that was one other thing we try and do is try and make the thing feel as relevant as possible. This isn't a nostalgia tour. There's connections to now. And one of those connections is toward the end of the film where you see the NASA spokesperson talk. He's getting all choked up about we realize we're not going back in our lifetime. This is it. And I was able to meet Poppy after we finished the film. And she told me that... Uh, everything was in place for deep space exploration to keep going. The Apollo missions had like laid the groundwork, but instead we went to a space shuttle program and the International Space Station. And she told me when I met her, she said, if we had kept going, we would have had people on the Mars 30 years ago. And I was speechless when she said that because you know we talk about it so much today there's so much push to go to mars go to mars or go back to the moon or whatever she said it was all there and we lost our will to keep going and so when you hear that from someone who was literally in the trenches every day working on all those apollo missions knowing where they were at knowing that they did it and then her having that knowledge along with her colleagues and Mars would have been the next logical step and we would have been there 30 years ago, but we stopped. That has relevance to how we approach our world today as well. Tom, thank you very much. Daniel, thank you. Nominees for the Primetime Emmy Awards will be announced July 16th. Daniel D'Addario and Caroline Framke discuss the competition. So Emmy nominations are almost upon us. They're coming out on July 16th, and we've been thinking a lot about what they're going to look like because the safe bet is they're going to look nothing like last year, especially in the drama category, to refresh your memory. In the 2018 Emmys, the drama nominees were Game of Thrones, Stranger Things, The Americans, The Crown, The Handmaid's Tale, This Is Us, and Westworld. This year, only two of those are eligible, Game of Thrones and This Is Us. 
This seems a pretty safe bet to assume both of those will be nominated again, but that leaves a lot of spots open. So, Dan, what do you think this category is going to look like in a weird year? Yeah, it really is strange. Just I think that a lot of shows were trying to get out of the way of Game of Thrones, which is kind of the Emmy favorite for many reasons we can discuss. Uh, But I think that Better Call Saul, which is another previous nominee, uh, which was not around last year, but came back this year, will be back as well. So that's three spots for three previous nominees. And then you necessarily have to get some new blood in there. So if I had to guess, I think that the nominees will include Pose. For sure. Yeah, FX's uh, drama about the uh, ballroom scene in late 80s and early 90s in New York City. Uh, FX traditionally does well with the nominations. And the fact that it's currently airing its second season makes a nomination for the first season uh, possible, all the more possible because it kind of brings it into mind. I think that Ozark, uh, which did very well in the nominations last year, although didn't quite get all the way to a Best Drama Series nomination, will kind of uh, cross that threshold this time. And I think for the last uh, one or two spots, I think series in contention include uh, Bodyguard, which in the U.S. airs on Netflix, and Homecoming, which airs on Amazon. Uh, Homecoming is interesting. It's kind of underperformed in awards so far relative to, I think, what they have on their hands. Julia Roberts was nominated for Golden Globe and SAG and did not win either, and I was a little surprised by that. But maybe the Emmys will respond a little more uh, to Sam Esmail, who's a creator they've nominated before for his other show, Mr. Robot. Right. I mean, that Julia Roberts performance, we've talked about a little bit, maybe off mic, but it is a quiet one, um, which really interested me as her sort of first foray into TV. She could have done something along the lines of Big Little Lies, where she could have like chewed up way more scenery and she really didn't. She took a step back. And I think it's a really impressive performance, but it's not the kind of performance that usually gets rewarded, even though she's Julia Roberts, which says a lot. I think she she will probably be nominated, but I do think it's reactive to a lot of what her peers at the very top of the industry are doing, which is to say, you know, Nicole Kidman and Reese Witherspoon and Big Little Lies. uh, I would include Amy Adams and Sharp Objects. These are, you go to TV and you kind of like eat up the screen and she is kind of more subdued. And I think that, So I think that that show may have a bit of a harder time kind of breaking in. And Bodyguard, which was a flashy kind of sensation that didn't boast a major star at its center and, in fact, kind of minted a major star in Richard Madden, uh, might kind of do what, what Homecoming is not able to do. Yeah, the lead actor race, we don't have to get into it completely, but it is pretty wide open at this point. So that's interesting. I feel like we will see Madden there. I feel like after the last few months of Emmy pushing, we'll see Billy Porter there. Agreed. Uh, Stephen James from Homecoming, as long as we're talking about Homecoming, I would love to see him there because he really does have such an incredible performance. He's what makes that show for me. So I would like to see him there. I would love to see that. Something about... It's just funny not to beat up on Homecoming, which I thought was a great show. It was in my top 10 of the year last year. It For some reason, it just didn't seem to be the zeitgeist hit that I kind of expected it would or be. Or that I think Amazon wanted it to be. <laughs> yeah, completely. And I'm a, I'm a little curious, uh, maybe in a season two without Roberts, if it'll be something that's allowed to more organically, I guess, be have the audience that it wants to have and kind of maybe grow into something. But we'll see. Um, 
Yeah, no, I, I think um, that James would be a very welcome addition to the best actor race. Uh, other than that, though, I mean, last year's I mean, winner, was, again, Matthew Reese is not eligible because the right. Americans is over. And, I mean, what a welcome, surprising yeah. win that was. Yes, um, and Claire Foy and the actress race is out of it. It's going to, in drama, there's just been a lot of term, uh, turnover. And as such, it kind of leaves things intriguingly open i think that ultimately thrones wins the top prize very likely but a world in which pose is being nominated for best drama is actually a pretty interesting and exciting one yes i'm i'm really excited for that because i i mean this is again assuming that it's going to happen which i feel like it will especially because one thing i think we can't rule out in terms of its importance and gaining a bigger audience is that it hit the first season hit netflix a month before the second season started airing on FX, and I think that has grown its audience. Certainly more people are aware of it and able to catch up on it in a way that they weren't before and at a perfect time for Emmy voting. Yeah, and I think that in recent memory, shows that have won the very top prize at the Emmys, not just below-the-line stuff or acting prizes, but the best drama and the best comedy winners tend to be things that have kind of a cross-cutting cultural impact that goes beyond the quality of the show. Obviously, Game of Thrones achieved that. I would argue that both Veep and, to an extent, Maisel have done that. Other recent winners like Homeland and Mad Men did that. And I think that Pose, more than others of its peers that are likely to be nominated, more than Bodyguard, more than Ozark, really has kind of cut into the culture. Billy Porter has become a red carpet icon. People are talking about these episodes, talking about these characters. MJ Rodriguez is on the cover of magazines. I really think that Pose is likely to have a long life. And I think it has that kind of like more than just good element that I think potentially in the future, maybe, maybe it will, I, I'm hopeful it'll be nominated and maybe it'll win someday in the future. Yeah, we'll see. But uh, you brought up a couple comedies that I think we should talk about too, because this has been, if it's been a weird year for drama, it's been a really strong year for comedy. And I think the two you mentioned, Veep and Maisel, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, we're definitely going to see. I think Veep is going to win. There's kind of no way to beat it at this point, because like you said, it taps into the culture. It's the last season. Julia Louis-Dreyfus has been completely unstoppable in this role. Yes. But there are so many other shows that I think will break in, and I'm excited for that. I am hopeful that Fleabag and Russian Doll, two of my favorite shows this year, will. I think that they have been mounting pretty pretty solid campaigns um, to get their names in there. I think so, too. I think if I were to put on like my awards guru hat and i would be worried that you know that these two shows have very similar constituencies but at the same time like they're both so successful on their own terms and they are meaningfully different from each other and i do think there's room for both of them it's just that other stuff is inevitably going to get squeezed out but like there's a ton of great potential nominees yeah, I think we'll also see Barry, even though, again, both of us are pretty firm that Barry is a drama. It would actually... <laughs> it would have a good chance. It would have a really good chance, and maybe even at a win this year, if it ran as a drama. Yeah, but... <laughs> I am hopeful of that. And again, Homecoming is a half-hour drama, and very um, aggressively so. I think that we will start seeing more... Um, we're going to start seeing more half-hours in the drama space. Yes. Um, I think it's a really good length for dramas. I think it's a great length for everything, but I'm just, Agreed. I'm an advocate of cutting everything down all the time. <laughs> so you, you mean to say you didn't love the Game of Thrones season where every episode was 77 minutes long? Like... Ooh, did I hear about that? And did it haunt my dreams for weeks before the, yeah. <laughs> the season dropped? Sure, sure. Uh, but yeah, I, so I think Barry will be in there. I think Veep, Maisel. Um, 
I wouldn't be surprised if something like Dead to Me snuck in there. Netflix has been pushing that one pretty hard. Um, I didn't love it nearly as much as Russian Doll, etc. They're very different, but you another never know. show also incidentally, and not that this is. I mean, comedy and drama divisions and award shows are basically just an excuse to give out more prizes to more famous people. I don't think it's like handed down on a stone tablet from God, but mm-hmm. at the same time, like Dead to Me to me, is uh, much more of a drama than it is a comedy. I mean, I agree. I <laughs> I've, I wish that there were a better way to uh, to differentiate these things. I feel like that is a whole other, that's a whole other conversation, but it's one I'm really interested in because I feel like the award show categories are a little bit behind where the industry is going and is um, currently. And it's an interesting thing right now because shows do have to petition to be one or the other if they're like stars as Vita did um, make a play to be in the drama race versus the comedy, even though they're half hour. Um, I think that's correct. Um, But it is something that's incumbent on the shows to prove. And I think that that's not quite what it should be, but it is something that I think we're going to be seeing more and more of. I mean, even I was just thinking about it. I don't know if Russian doll would have had to compete in limited series if they hadn't announced a second season, because for a second it looked like that was it. But and like, I think that they very purposefully made that announcement in order to clear that up. Right. Um, they didn't, I guess, didn't want to pull a big little lies, which will be drama <laughs> next year. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. I, I really, I wonder if shows are going to get out of the way of big little lies this time next year. It, shows with, say, strong supporting female performances, but that's something that we'll just have to wait 12 months to discuss. Yes, because, you know, for as many shows as we've, as we've discussed and as many shows are going to be nominated, you know what we always say, there's always more TV where that comes from. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.